Thanks for joining us for another intriguing edition of the Stack Pack. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. Welcome. Welcome back. Um, this is the last episode of season three. It's taken us a while, guys, but we're we're in it. We're going to be releasing episodes every week. Oh, yeah. Um, we're back, baby. Hopefully. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> we're doing it. We're um, doing it. What's up? Stack Pack. I'm your host, David Howell, with my lovely, lovely co-hosts, um, Elias Dominguez. Eli, what's up, uh, bud? Man, I'm riding high today, baby. <laughs> riding high today, baby. Oh, man, I feel so good. I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Uh, <laughs> it feels good to oh. be alive. <laughs> you want to tell the listeners why or no? <laughs> uh... The future is bright. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, good, good. Um, and Rodan uh, currently still can't. No, not Canadan no anymore. He's, he's washing Dan. I'm, I'm Washadan. Or Dan DC. Uh, District of Dan Columbia. Whatever. D- District of Danumbia? Dan Lumbia. Today, your first day is there today, right? This is your travel day? Yeah, gig tomorrow. And then from here, it's weird. This week we go Washington, D.C., to Detroit to Philly. Mm. Oh, nice. That's weird. Um, I'm <laughs> jealous of you getting a cheese whiz filled Philly cheesesteak. Oh, um, it's going to be delicious. Yeah, what's up, guys? While he's licking we, the Liberty Bell. We have a case today. We, we got some. We, we got a case. Um, and um, before we get started, I kind of want to mention that we are. Um, I think we're going to suspend the Lost Loves cases unless yeah. they're, like, really fucking interesting. And we're going to mark that today by covering a somewhat semi-interesting Lost Loves case. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it is. I think we've decided that, like, maybe we should not cover them when they're, like, the last story. Because after all, this is kind of supposed to be comedic and, and entertaining. it kind of sucks. Like. It's really hard... <laughs> It's really hard to make those stories entertaining when they're just bummers, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure all the listen, all you guys can tell. Usually, if it's lost loves, it's just like me reading facts, <laughs> which yeah. is not really the my favorite thing about doing the show is like reading my notes. It's more of like the things that come from that, the spontaneous things, and just kind of like reading a sad story. Uh, and then a lot of them are just unsolved. I don't know. Yeah. So unless like there's a really intriguing lost loves, we're gonna we're gonna suspend those. Um, if you really miss them, let us know. I mean, I don't think anybody will, but I mean, if you're really like, oh fuck that, they're not gonna do lost loves. I'm hey, stopping I- listening to these guys and their dick jokes talking about family members not being I got found. A, I got a cool idea. Maybe just, maybe if we had like if if you want to like have a, an audio clip on our show. Why don't you guys cover the lost loves and send us the audio clip <laughs> via Instagram, like do an Instagram video and we will play the audio on there. Of, just do like a really funny recap. And you can do um, it however you want and we'll play it. We will play it. Yeah, we'll I'll give you an example at the end of this episode for the lost loves that we're not going to cover <laughs> because it's such a fucking bummer. Yeah, and that's true, especially when they're, when they're tagged at the end of the episode, you know? It's like I feel like most of the people listening, our listener base, are not listening to – you know, three sort of funny guys talk about how this lady was a was adopted in 1934 and is looking for her parents still. Like anything from aliens to Bigfoot to murder is more. That's what you know, we're more interested in. Um, I, there's lots of podcasts about genealogy, and 
<laughs> what they should do is do a Lost Loves podcast. Someone should do an Unsolved Mysteries Lost Loves podcast. That sounds I boring. I would not as be fuck. a listener. Yeah, I would not. I'm saying saying it out loud. I'm like, okay, maybe someone should, but I, I would would not be on my list. There's got to be a but, way to do it funny. Maybe we're yeah. just not good at it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we don't have the sympathy for it, and a lot of true crime podcasts that are comedic get shit for being unsensitive or. I mean, if you're sword and, if you're Mike Boudet, just fucking shit bags, I guess, just pure <laughs> bags of shit. But um, yeah, you know, I feel like we we're better equipped for, God, you know, that guy that stuff. Oh yeah, should we talk about that a little bit? He loves he loves that though. He loves that whole. I know he texted me today. Just kidding. I don't have his number. <laughs> Mike Boudet. No, okay, yeah, we know you're friends with Bob Ruff of the Truth and Justice podcast. You can't just say that. You got all of the true crime. I was going to say cool, but Mar- no, Mar- I mean not, not a Mike Boudet. I got, I, I got, Mar- I got Marissa from The Vanished on my. Uh, she's, oh yeah, she's on my top eight. <laughs> I, Dude, I, I reopened up my MySpace, guys. Uh, the cap, <laughs> the captain, and Nick from uh, True Crime Garage. Yeah, those oh, guys. I, I, those guys are cool. Uh, Payne, um, Payne Lindsay, he's coming over. He's going to have a couple beers and. I don't even know that <laughs> reference. No, dude, he's actually Payne Lindsay. Okay, that little kid has a very, very successful podcast. And who? His name's Payne Lindsay. He's the one that did um, God Up and Vanished with he ca- he covers Tara Grinstead the Car- Up and Vanished Tara Grinstead case and like it gained a lot of traction and he's got a lot of people. he's really young he's he's yeah I think he's like I want to say twenty three. 20. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. I'd listen to that. It's pretty um, good. Yeah, but I was thinking more Sarah Koenig and um, Aaron Mankey. Oh, yeah, and, Sarah Koenig. Um, and who's, uh, who else is a cool tr- – oh, yeah, uh, yeah. let's throw in Ben Marcus and uh, Henry from last podcast on the left. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. I can't do as good voices as uh, Henry, but – Those guys are characters, and they're great live. If, you, if you've never seen them live, go to a live show. It was great. They have a full. They're touring. Like if they come around to Dallas, let me know because um, it's a different show. Like they have, they retired their old show. They recorded it, and you they're can gonna, buy it now. So it's a different a show. One. I'd be down to see him again. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, all right. Let's talk about murder. Uh, um, I I don't know, dude. I kind of want to do. I kind of want to do like a Mike Boudet talk. Like, did you hear that whole thing? How they dropped him? Did you hear his his Sword and Scale episode where he was like, some people can't just ignore Facebook posts and some people have to ruin my life like Aaron Mickey and okay. Rabia. Okay. Did Come you hear on. that? No, but dude, he's, he did a whole episode on not being an asshole on Facebook. And then he goes and he's being an asshole on Facebook. The whole time he's been a fucking asshole on Facebook. Like it's, there, there's a blog called an open letter to Mike Boudet or whatever. And this person, I believe it's a female from the context I got from, from it. But, um, they just post like just fucked up shit he says on his own Facebook group, and it's just like it's just not even like funny, like you know, sexual dumb shit. Like, but he loves that like, dude. He loves being that controversial figure. Yeah, there's well, no, fuck him. There's yeah. no such thing as bad publicity <laughs> until he gets thrown out. Well, did you hear? There's still Sword and Scale, and and. It has. A, they have a different host. Did you hear that shit? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so listen some- to the newest episode of Sword and Scale. The lady who like 
introduces it first. Like this is sword and scale. Like she just does the whole thing. So huh. Mike, Bo- Mike Boudet is still, it's kind of shitty because he's still like a producer and writer, but like, he's just like, he's not the face of the brand anymore. Yeah. Which is kind of like, eh. I-, I was reading reviews. Um, there's like a bunch of one star reviews now of this new episode. And they were just like, it's also fucked up because you can tell Mike Boudet definitely wrote the first part of it, you know? Yeah. Well, like you oh, can tell it was written by him. So I, I stopped, I dude, his stuff is so like, some of his episodes are just so heavy and dark. I can't, I couldn't get through it, man. Like there's, there's a lot of them that I had to skip. Like he plays like nine one one calls where like nine year old kids. Oh, yeah call in and their their mom's getting beaten by their dad and it's like fuck man i don't want to hear this i'm skipping this episode please well he's been getting shit for um playing these calls without people's consent and also giving just full names away of victims and and shit you know just shit that was never made public and it's just and then of course just like fat shaming people on like it's just just being a shaming? fucking general pig. It's like, you know, you deal with a sensitive subject. I don't know. Like, I was just like, even like the last podcast on the left guys are like talking about, you know, the shoemaker who is a murderer who like cut children's penises off. And it's, they're making jokes and it's funny, but they're not being terrible and hurtful to victims or people. I'm like, how is this guy who has like this professional podcast like being more controversial than the last podcast on the left? Who yeah. always make jokes about heinous, heinous crimes? Like yeah, that's their yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. spiel. Yeah, and his so is like, very what's serious. The difference? It's like sword and scale is like not generally funny. nice people. Yeah, sword what's and the difference. Sword and scale is not funny. It's meant to be serious. And if yeah, he's there's like that line where you just like if you if you don't have yeah. a if you're not doing comedy, then there's like a there's just a, a, a delivery problem. I think. Yeah, it's like read the fucking room. But yeah. anyway, I don't know. If, we'll, we'll see if any of that makes but the people. Podcast. But people love it, man. People love his podcasts. Oh yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's talk about murder. Dude, we we're twenty um, minutes in. We haven't even talked about one case this week. <laughs> yeah, but it's more like ten minutes in. Can we talk about my favorite ride of all amusement rides? The tunnel uh, of cocaine. <laughs> Oh, the tunnel of cocaine. Yeah, this one isn't about murder. You're totally right. Before we start the case, I feel like this is something I want to start doing on every episode. So these cases originally aired April 24th of 1991. Um, Just to give you, you know, bring you to the space to which you're going to be listening to this, which is, uh, you know, it'll be pretty close. When you guys listen to this, it'll be pretty close to that date, actually. We're Wayne's worlding you and we're going to go. How do they how do they do it? The <laughs> taking you all the way back, babies. April 24th, 1991. Um Robert Stack yells at us aggressively about how um about the war on drugs. And no, he doesn't yell. He's very sweet and soft spoken. Great band, by the way. War on drugs. Great band. <laughs> that is a band, huh? It's a great one, too. And that's kind of an interesting thing to bring up, I think, because, you know, that was that era. Was it totally the like the Tipper Gore era? Remember, wasn't she all big about? Oh, no. Nancy Reagan as well. Oh, Nancy the, Reagan was all about like punk da- rock and horror movies being terrible. Yeah. And dare. And destroying the youth. That's where they came out. That's where, that's where dare was born, right? The Okay. But was, was dare Nancy Reagan or was dare? I think it was. 
Um, uh, Nancy Reagan or Tipper? No, Tipper Gore was more. Tipper Gore was more like, oh, there shouldn't be cuss words. Like she was the parental advisory. Like on you know, wasn't she, she like hated rap music and stuff? I don't know. It's been a while. I was a baby. <laughs> I was a small child when Gore was rocking. I was six. Little Tipper. I'm six. <laughs> so yeah, war on drugs. It was. I mean, it was a common thing. I mean, it was like a. It was a topic, you know, war on drugs was like Me Too or, you know, Black Lives Matter. Like, it was just like, drugs are destroying our youth and we got to do everything to stop it. Ultimately, they failed pretty much, especially with, you know, marijuana being legalized. Um, They realized that there's way worse things to be worried about than, uh, you know, marijuana. So, crazy-ass drug smuggling operation, that's what we're going to be talking about. As Dan said, the tunnel of cocaine love. Well, I added the love part. <clears throat> it's love, baby. Love. So Douglas, Arizona, we take you to. Um, it is 97 miles from Phoenix, and it is right on the border. Uh, it's separated by a six-foot chain-link fence to a little town in Mexico called Agua Pierta. And, um, very good, David. That was very good Spanish. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 50 gold stars. <laughs> I live in El Paso, Texas. <laughs> uh, but I was listening. <laughs> sorry, I was listening to this Brooklyn Nine Nine episode where, like, they're like, "Oh, there was like a, there was a, the victim, like, the suspect had a guy in a sombrero." And then Boyle, like, the nerdy guy, kept saying, "So he was in a sombrero? What was he doing in a sombrero?" And then he's like, "Stop, stop pronouncing it like that." He's like, "Stop pronouncing sombrero like sombrero." <laughs> oh, I gotta watch like the, that show, man. Like the over pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah. Oh, white people. <laughs> um, there was a lot of drug trafficking going on in this area. Um, it was actually known as Cocaine Alley for that very reason. The person we're going to be focusing on in this case is a guy named Rafael Camarena. And he, um, in the fall of 1988, he starts crossing the border regularly. And he actually opens up a business in the States like Douglas concrete or something like that. Um, they're pretty much like a concrete construction company, um, concrete mixing company in Douglas. He was a Mexican national, so he wasn't living in the States, but he would cross over constantly, um, you know, to check on the business and stuff. Right. Right. The business, the business, the businesses. <laughs> he had a struggling concrete business, and uh, people that knew him consider him to be, you know, a friendly, family-orientated guy. You know, the kind of guy you want to join the Lions Club with. You know, just wholesome pillar in you know the American community. But at the yeah. same time, he had this failing uh, concrete business to where one of his co- his employees made a comment about. There would be days that that he would be he would come into the office and just be stressed out because he quote unquote didn't know how to pay his employees, and then two days later would walk into the office casually being like, "Oh, you know, it's been taken care of. Like, you know, you're all going to get paid. Like, no worries." And not a single one of them ever batted an eye. Like, okay, one day the business is failing and we're not going to get paid, and then the next day everything's cool and we're all going to get paid. Like no one ever wondered like, what the fuck is going on here? Like he seemed relieved when he would be like, okay, here's your checks guys. Yeah. You know, like a load off of his back. Uh, Yeah. Kind of like how Eli's feeling. Oh yeah. In 1989, Camarena 
busts out with a um, warehouse. He builds a warehouse um, in America just right on the border. Right across the street from his house. Yeah. At the same time, he's building a beautiful four-bedroom ranch-style home, which is literally 200 feet away from the warehouse he's building at the same time in the States. And it has all the amenities you would want. A swing set for the kids that looks like it's going to fall apart any any second now. A giant satellite dish. And a pool table that lifts up with a hydraulic system, a two-ton piece of concrete to reveal a very cool hidden passage. And, and to quote Robert Stack, it's something from a James Bond movie. Cool shit. He turns in that reenactment. I know we're jumping ahead in the scene, but like he turns the the nozzle, like the garden nozzle, and the the garden hose. Yeah, (laughs) so fucking cool. (laughs) But anyways, okay. But it makes sense, man. He's a con. He's in concrete. He's in the concrete biz. Yeah, that's another thing. So obviously, he's smuggling drugs from his from his home in Mexico to his warehouse in the states. So they stake out his concrete company for two months. They're waiting outside, and they see this 18-wheeler that kind of comes and goes, but there's nothing on it, which is probably – it's a a very intricate, smart plan that they have, but they should have at least, like, put something on the – you know, for them to be transporting. A car, a person – Hookers, something. Yeah. What tips them off is uh, agents receive a a tip from uh, an anonymous person that there was suspicious activity going on at the warehouse, which prompted the agents to do a two-month investigation where they discovered a flatbed truck would leave and return every single day. And, you know, after noticing the pattern, the agents decided to follow it and discover that the truck only ever went from the warehouse to a ranch just outside of Phoenix and would park into a barn and then leave at the end of the day to go back to the warehouse. And like, that's all the truck ever did. And that's when they got suspicious was like, okay, like who takes an 18 wheeler with a flatbed and, and, you know, drives it home and then do a warehouse every day. (laughs) Like, I mean, excuse me, sir. What's your job? I mean, when you really think about it, it's, it's not like a bright idea. It's just like, it's very obvious. I don't know. Yeah. It's like this, it is, it is like, there's some stupidity, but it's also a very smart operation, you know, of what, I mean, like I was saying, they should have at least like put something like, "Oh, we're taking hay to our wood place at a wood. farm." Wood or wood, something, hay. something, food, dog food, anything. They form a task force with a bunch of different types of law enforcement agencies, and they go to this farm and they do a raid. And of course, they find a shit ton of cocaine, like um a hundred million dollars worth of cocaine and at that just, time yeah, in nineteen ninety one. Fuck, that's a fuck ton of cocaine. And they said it was pure. I don't think it was cut yet. Um, And the coke was hidden in, like, in the bed of the truck, like the flat bed of the 18-wheeler. Under it, there was some compartment that they could stuff, like, a shit ton of blow in, apparently. One ton, apparently. Um, yeah, sorry. A shit, yeah, yeah. A shit ton. And a, a ton, ton of blow. Yeah, I guess it's just one ton. <laughs> Maybe that's why they couldn't put anything on the truck because it only carried – it already had a ton of cocaine <laughs> underneath them. Yeah. Well, and then, uh, and, and a flatbed semi-truck can 
hold about 60,000 pounds, so it could have held more coke. <laughs> yeah, you're top- probably right. So, so this is the part where they're like, oh, well, how did they do it? And we kind of already jumped ahead, sorry. but So the masked magician reveals. <laughs> I mean, but even when watching the episode, you're like, how are they confused at how this was working? Like, yeah. oh, obviously there's a fucking tunnel. Coke yeah. just doesn't magically appear in a warehouse. Yeah, unless they're making it there, but that's a whole other operation. Two days after this, Mexican and American agents do a simultaneous raid. The respected warehouse in the U.S. and the at one at Raphael's house. And um, so they were working together on this. And what do they find? Well, at first they didn't find anything, but then they find a huge floor grate in the warehouse, which I guess wasn't that hidden. But it took them a while to find what um, what was in the uh, the house, right? Like they couldn't find it until until the agents like went into the tunnel to the other side. But they did note that this was a very well constructed tunnel. They said it had <laughs> they said it had concrete floors, sides, hmm. and roof. Where do you think oh, he got the concrete from? <laughs> this. This is the biggest mystery. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the guy had a concrete company. He had a he built a dope ass tunnel, motherfuckers. His business built a business. Another thing that's cool to note is that they filmed it in the actual tunnel. Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm assuming that was actually his house. I mean, you know, they show the two tons of concrete that also had a pool table on top of it that was lifted up like a James Bond thing. Um, like we mentioned earlier. So the tunnel was 30 feet deep and went over 200 feet into Mexico. Well constructed, of course. And also, the way the pool table lifted up, they could just lift it up and store a bunch of cocaine down there until they needed to move it. Apparently, there was also a custom-made cart made yeah. specifically for the tunnel. So they could just trot it down there. And then there was some sort of pulley to where they could just lift it up from the U.S., and and no one would actually have to go up there or anything. So pretty intricate. Yeah, and they said that he was his co his uh, like coworker right was talking about how he was confused because he had a struggling business and yet he had this very lucrative <laughs> cocaine operation on the side. And everybody said that he didn't seem like a bad guy. They didn't think he was a drug dealer at all. Yeah, they. <laughs> I believe What's the so word funny? they said is drug smuggler. Drug smuggler, right. She she didn't – the secretary was funny. She was like, he didn't dress like a drug dealer. Yeah. Had a he drug didn't d- act like a drug dealer. <laughs> I guess she knows a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I just picture her seeing like a movie, like, like one Scarface. Movie. Yeah, she's yeah, she's, she gonna... watched Scarface and she was like, this is how it's supposed to be. He looks nothing like Al Pacino. <laughs> He didn't say I told. He didn't say I told him to tell you in sanitation, mate. <laughs> Sorry, that's fine. <laughs> um, so the update is cool. I'm giving you the update from the website because they, you know, they give you a little summary. But we looked. I looked a little more into this. So the update is he was captured on November 27th of 1995. Uh, Camarena was um, arrested off the coast of Sinola. Mexico, Sonola. He was on a boat that was apparently carrying 2.8 tons of cocaine. Ooh. <laughs> he was using a different name. The name was Mariano Zamora Vallegas, and the Mexican 
police did not know his real identity, so they just arrested him with this fake name. He was convicted on these drug charges, and he spent five years in prison in uh, Mexico. And then in March of 1999, after his case was on America's Most Wanted, the authorities got a tip that he was in Mexican prison, and he was living under a different name. So after the authorities were able to make sure that that was a true story, in June of 2001, after he gets out of jail for the other thing, um, he's extradited to the U.S. for prosecution. And then he served additional time for drug smuggling, and apparently he has since been released. Yeah. I don't know if he's still alive now, but <laughs> just Maybe. like you're in jail for all this shit in Mexico, and then they're like, all right, buddy, good for you. Now go off to the U.S. and serve some more time. Piece of shit. <laughs> but, I mean, this is he's he's also one of our bad guys that never really murdered anybody. But, you know, who knows yeah. what all of those drugs being sent into the country could have done. He just wanted to provide for his family and just move a little cocaine into the U.S. I mean, what's the problem with that? <laughs> it was the 80s. It's fine, right? It's it was fine. the 80s, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was late It's 80s. fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, next, we have an update. Um, this is where the Dennis DePew update originally aired. Just a little background on this. Dennis DePew's the guy who, like, murdered his wife pretty much in front of his kids. Not really. Um, he dragged her out, and they went out in a van. And the couple, a couple driving by, saw him with, like, a bloody sheet and went back. And, you know, there was, like, a whole thing with another couple. Um, he was missing for a while, and the update on this episode is, you know, his girlfriend um, realizes who he is after he like leaves hastily the night that the unsolved mysteries episode airs. And then he's in some like shootout with cops where he starts shooting at the cops and then he like gets killed by the cops. Right. Or did he shoot himself? He shot himself. He killed himself. He shoots himself. He shot himself. And one of the sheriffs on the scene, they interview him and he's like, you know, it's kind of funny when, you know, you see the fella on TV on, on a TV program. And then you see him, then you see the body in the car, and you're like, yep, that was him. It's kind of funny. Like, what the fuck? It's <laughs> weird. Yeah. He still looked creepy as fuck in the update. I mean, I know that's the same picture, but I forgot how ugly he was. <laughs> the thing I do want to mention is, we mentioned this on the other one, but the note that he left, he sent to uh, family members after he killed his wife, said, like, an eye for an eye, a death for a death. And then Robert Stack says, like, you didn't know how true that would be, blah, blah, blah. Cool, Robert. Dope. I think this is our last Lost Loves we'll be covering. Eh. Um, uh, unless it's really fucking interesting. I I, I don't know. We'll weigh them um, out. We'll weigh them out. Tweet a, t- grab us, comment on a picture if you think this is a good idea or a bad idea or whatever. Or tweet us, you can. But we do love the Instagram. Um, but uh, I feel like, yeah, this case has some cool twists and turns. And it has a happy ending. Spoiler alert. So... And it's also takes place in El Paso, Texas, where we're all from. Yeah, where I still currently am. So Jeannie Wagner um, has a normal family, brothers and sisters, uh, mom and dad. She's cool. She said she always felt different. She said apparently when she was a kid, she felt like she might be adopted. She didn't look a lot like everyone else. But she didn't know that there was anything. No one told her anything. So she's in El Paso, Texas. That's where she grows up. And she learns a fucking crazy secret about her family. She finds a, some skeletons in the, in the family closet, right? Yeah, totally. And the best way to kind of s- explain the story 
is to tell you about Patsy Summers, who was the mother of Jeannie Wagner. So Patsy was married when she was 17 years old. At the tender age of 17. At the ten, yeah. But um, that's kind of where the story ends almost. So <laughs> so um, she has a crazy mom, not crazy, but super religious, uptight. You know, they were very polite, went to Catholic schools and went to church every Sunday. And um, they were, she was raised in a religious household. She was almost like, when she's describing her, though, she's kind of describing her as kind of being a little bit like having some symptoms of like, like manic depressive, like almost like bipolar. Because um, it says, she's, yeah, she's like happy, carefree at times. And then other times she says that she was really, you know, downtrodden, almost like depressed. They, they tell the story and it's a little confusing. So when they're talking, to, when we're talking about this part, we're talking about her um, as a mother. Jeannie. Jeannie talking about her mom, who was the 17-year-old girl at the time. Because they, they, it's a little confusing. So right, she was raised in a religious household and all this stuff. And then we get Jeannie talking about how her mom raising her was depressed. Like, obviously suffering from depression. Like, mood swings, like, up the kazoo. Um. Tormented by a private demon is the word Stack uses. You know what's funny is that word private demon. I, I picture like just a, a demon that just keeps to himself. <laughs> like a little demon yeah. that just like, I'm just a private demon. I just want to be left alone. Yeah. It's like you have like a, a moody roommate who's a demon from another dimension. It's like, <laughs> hey, uh, going to Whataburger, you want anything? No, I already ate. Okay, private demon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in 1973, when Jeannie was only 13 years old, Patsy attempted suicide by cutting her wrists. That's so fucking traumatic. Um, for a kid, I'm, I can't imagine. Yeah. You know what? Now that you mentioned that, that is crazy, man. Like as a, as a kid, you, you like, I know for me, my parents weren't all, I, I'm sure for you guys too, your parents weren't always, they weren't the always the best parents. I mean, who, whose parents are, they probably made a lot of mistakes, but as a kid, you look up to your parents, you, you expect for them to yeah. like have their shit together. And then when they don't, that's, that's, that's a bad sign. And yeah. Thinking of one of your parents trying to give up on life when you're like 13, you're like, well, what the fuck does that mean for me? Like, right. That's right. Ble- that's pretty bleak. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a good plot, man. I never thought about that. And eight years later, she actually, Patsy actually attempts suicide again, but this time, unfortunately she succeeds um, she just drove straight into an oncoming car. Like, I guess just went to on the wrong side of the road and she died 10 days later, I assume in the hospital. Um, they don't really get into it, but so uh, shortly after Patsy dies, Jeannie gets a call from her sister, her little sister, obviously. And, um, she find, she found a diary of Patsy's. They pretty much laid out. The, the family secret, the thing they had been wondering about the whole time, the thing they knew was there, but they just didn't know the exact, like, what happened. The dark secret. Yeah, the dark secret, the skeletons in the closet, um, or if you want to be John Gacy about it, the skeletons in the crawl space. <laughs> <laughs> Those are children. They're raped boys. Yes, I understand. I know. It's not. <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> That's getting cut up. Yet here um, we are. <laughs> so four-page um, Mueller report summary of the diary was that Jeannie's dad was not her real dad. Some political humor for you. 
classic El Paso woman right there for you. <laughs> oh, my God. You piece of shit. <laughs> Babies making babies. Shit. If you don't get out of El Paso by the time you're 18, you've had five kids and you're never leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's the same about a lot of, like, towns, you know. I don't know. I can't leave that in the podcast, can I? <laughs> yes, you can. And you have to. <laughs> Oh man, um, that's why I'm never leaving because I have my, I have three kids. I, they're all dogs, but <laughs> oh come on, David, they're not that ugly. <laughs> oh man, okay, we're we're getting through lost loves, funny lost loves. All right, so finally, all these things that Jeannie had thought her whole life made sense. Um, she her dad, who she thought who were, who she thought her father was, was indeed not her father. So when Patsy was 17, it was 1958, and she lived with her mother and her younger brother. Um, she was a very good student. Like, they fucking overemphasized. Good student, religious as shit. Okay, we get it. Catholic school, blah, 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 Cool, 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 cool. You know what? Actually, that doesn't mean anything. You know, those – I'm sorry. I'm going go no, a little red you're, here. You're, you're actually 100% right. These Catholic girls and these, like, Christian girls – they're way worse than those other ones. The ones that don't go, don't have any clue what, you know, religion is. They have these, these ah, I don't know. I just thought we were not going to go too deep into it, but they're, they've got, they're, they're out there too, man. They're, they make some pretty dodgy choices. We'll just leave it. Friend that her um, family is very comfortable with her uh, mother likes him and her brother likes him and, you know, they know him, and she's been going with him for a while. It's very innocent. And he drove a nice car. Oh, yes, which is very important. This is a cool um, um, detail. And it also comes back later to in the, the last case we're going to be talking about. A nice car was involved um, in, the, in that one, too. This story is very, like, notebook-esque, like, Nicholas Sparks kind of, like, <laughs> love story. It is, yeah, and there's no, yeah, and there's no murder in it. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't totally give up on the lost loves. <laughs> it is very Nicholas Sparks, yeah, yeah. So family likes this boy, but they did fight every now and then, which I don't know what that means. She, after one of these little rows, um, she's at a park, a scotate, I assume, because it's El Paso. I don't fucking know. <laughs> or maybe the plaza. Um, what was it? What's that park called? Like maybe back then when they actually had real alligators there. San Jose. In the San Jose Plaza. Yeah, who knows? So she was at a park after she got in a row, a fight with her boyfriend, and she meets a very sweet, sweet man. Um, um, he was a soldier, and he was stationed at nearby Fort Bliss. Which is still very much a thing. Sexy army uniform. Sexy ass Duncan. Yeah. Um, he was soft spoken and just the sweetest, sweetest man. And this is where I just want to. Um, there, there's when they show them meeting, there is she makes the funniest look that I can't believe they used for the episode where she gives him the f most hilarious horny eyes. <laughs> like, like an overacting, like facial, ge facial gesture. That is definitely going to be all over the Instagram the week we post this episode. Yeah, you, know, they, you you guys will see it. I sent it to the boys already, but yeah, it, they, it's pretty good. <laughs> the only the only thing it was missing was her licking her lips, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she got super wet for homeboy. Um, for for what did you call him? Uh, Duncan. No, but you called him sexy ass Duncan. I think you called sexy him. ass Duncan. <laughs> Name of the episode. 
<laughs> um, so they started kind of having these little meetings or, you know, they started hanging out on the regular. Um, and she thought he was so nice and kind and she liked it. So in 1958, she turned 17 and apparently Duncan threw her a birthday party with some close friends. And, which yeah. is weird, right? Where like, was her boyfriend's birthday party? Jeez. Side note, 1958. Apparently nobody can write in a fucking cake properly because that cake looked like shit. <laughs> the art of cake calligraphy <laughs> was fucking whack, yo. Get your shit together, 1958. I'm pretty sure that has nothing to do with the shitty forced speed it up fast filming of reenactments and that was just some shit in the 50s that they just couldn't fucking do you couldn't cursive a goddamn icing on a cake that's very uh uh andrew dice clay of you <laughs> hey that i get the reference but i've never actually like seen him do comedy i, I kind of mother hubbard sits on a fucking tub of, i don't know yeah <laughs> He does all See, those I've never seen rhymes. him talk, but I've seen the Goldbergs. I don't know. Okay. So Duncan threw her a birthday party. We don't know why. Whatever. And at this point, she's living a dual life. She's funkin' Duncan. <laughs> but she's still dating her boyfriend. And this is where I'm confused. <laughs> she's fucking Duncan. <laughs> I, I added an N in there. To my notes, so make more sense, Duncan. Duncan. That's really funny, though. Um, seems to me like her her actual boyfriend was a real piece of shit. Like he didn't even. They don't to... mention him at all, even yeah. though he turns out to be the mother of her children. Sorry, spoiler alert. Oh so. man, but no, but come on, he didn't even give her a seventeenth birthday party. Somehow Duncan did that. Um, so she's still dating her boyfriend while Funkin' Duncan, or you know, seeing Duncan. They had these secret liaisons all summer. <sighs> and by October, she was pregnant. Um, and it was definitely Duncan's and not her boyfriend. But her boyfriend didn't know that. Um, so she was fucking him too. Shit. But, but See? At the time she they did. She did all the sex. She was like, I've been raised religious. I'm just going to do all the sex. Yeah. Classic El Paso woman. So be right easier there. on your kids. They won't feel like they have to make up for shit they lost. You know? I feel I really feel that's a that's a thing. Dude, like, okay, I'm going to go parenting right here. Honestly, I feel like the way to be a successful parent is you have to create an environment for your kids to fail. Like you got to let them know it's okay. Like you're going to fuck up. Like you're a human being. You're going to fuck up. Mom and dad are here for you. We're going to love you no matter what. And yeah, you fuck up, we're going to be here. This is, you know, you try to be your best human, you're going to fail. Everybody fails. So so you mean rather than just being so strict that they're scared yeah. to do anything wrong? Yeah, you've got to tell them, like, okay. look, we have rules. These are morally things that you shouldn't do. You shouldn't kill people. You shouldn't uh, You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't, you know, things, things, you know, people, things that you teach your kids. But if they mess up, you got to say, hey, you know what, we're... You're, sorry, you're a human. We're, we're going to love you. Like, I'm sorry. We're going to try again. Push delete and you start over. It's you, fine that this didn't go the way you wanted to. You got you to create a, a safe place for them to like try things and let them know like, hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. I think that's good advice. I, I, feel like, I feel like, dude, if my parents had done that, I feel like I would have made better choices. I wouldn't have gone through this whole like, you know, rebellious period where you feel like you can't do things. 
um, I mean, yeah, like I said, that's the exception, not the rule. You, it's n- not all kids are the same. You got to weigh it out. But yeah, I don't oh, know. No, yeah, I feel like my parents let me fail a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So back to our story. Um, at this point, she's pregnant with Duncan's baby and not her boyfriend's baby, but she's already planning on getting married. Um, so in this diary entry that um, they found after Patsy's death, it said that she she couldn't in a million years ever have told her mother what she was going through. And sweet Duncan um, accepted full responsibility for the baby. He wanted to marry her and he very much loved her. Um, but she ultimately decided to please her parents and please her family. And do the right thing. It was with which is what she thought, which is I'll marry my boyfriend, which is what everybody thought I was going to do and have this baby. Um, but so they get married. Um, she's already two months pregnant, but I guess she's not showing. Um, the baby shows up seven months after they get married. It's fucked up that she says that the in the diary the most important thing was that she had to please her mother. That is just some twisted yeah. shit, man. Like, ugh. yeah, it's super sad. They were totally Catholic. Oh, man, that just makes me so sad. When they got married, only the two of them knew that she was pregnant, and only she knew that the baby wasn't his. So like I said, seven months after the wedding, the baby is born. Jeannie is born. Um, And uh, Jeannie has just always wanted to find Duncan ever since she found out this revelation. So the update is very good on this story, guys. Um, The same night as this episode aired. Dude, I love this story. I love it. It's so cute. It's fucking adorable. Straight up. Like, this is really sweet, guys. Um, The same night that the episode aired, Suzanne Gilmore calls the telecenter. And she had a pretty interesting night. She's watching the episode um, while her husband, Duncan, is fast asleep. So she wakes her husband up and she says, Duncan. Okay. She says, were you ever stationed in El Paso at Fort Bliss? And he was like, yes. And then she asked, was it 1958? And he said, yes. And then she proceeded to ask him, do you know a Patsy Summers? And Duncan said, well, yes. Can I ask the next question? Did you fuck her? (laughs) Did you fuck her? And then, then, but it's so playful the way that the wife uh, tells this story. She's like, I, and then I asked him, did you sleep with her? And she's she's kind of, you know, giggling. And then um, and then Duncan Dude. is also relaying the story with his sep- his own separate talking head. And she and he says, well, yeah, I did. If my wife woke me up and, and <laughs> were you in El Paso? Yeah. Did you fuck this girl named Patsy? Well, Jesus Christ. How do I answer this? Well, yeah, it was before I met you, but I guess... It's like, was she also 16 and you were like at least 18 to be an enlisted officer? Okay. No, I guess that's part of that. That makes that, that taints the story. But yeah, yeah. So she says after, after he responds yes to the funny, did you sleep with her? Um, she says, well, you have a daughter and she's looking for you. And he sprung Congratulations though. She says, congratulations. You have a daughter. And he's like, What? Yeah, well, no, he, he, I think the part that he was, like, most excited about, she says, like, she's looking for me. He was so excited that she was looking for him because, I mean, this story clearly says that Duncan knew about the pregnancy and he was just kind of, like, shooed away, you know, and probably thought about it just 
you know, in the corner of his brain. That he had this the whole time. That's crazy. So May 3rd of 1991, they meet. She lives in Houston, so they go to they go from South Carolina to Houston. And they meet and he gets to meet his daughter. And it's fucking adorable. They meet and it's mad cute. Um he also gets to meet his two grandsons. Um she has two boys. And they're playing catch and it's fucking it's cool. It's 90s as shit. It's great. <laughs> um boy was it ever. And it's a really sweet story. He he uh so this happened in 1991. He died in 1998, but they were very close until his death. Oh man, um, seven solid yeah. years. And Jeannie and Suzanne are still very close. Um, that's what the internet told me about that story. So they didn't get that much time, but you know, it, you know, in the in the scheme of things, it's a it's a pretty happy ending. Yeah, and based on the footage, he was a lefty. He's ca- he's playing catch with his. Right-handed glove. <laughs> Good info. <laughs> Not that it matters. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I'm just really in a t-ball right now. <laughs> oh yeah, you're like looking at. <laughs> so Are you like, becoming hey. a stage mom? <laughs> yeah, I am. I yell at him. Maddox, hit the ball, you son of a bitch! <laughs> Fucking stage mom, stage mom Eli. If you don't make a homer, you're getting, you're not getting a dog. <laughs> if you don't hit this ball, we're putting your dogs down, you asshole. Hey, hey, there's another, there's like a hidden serial killer in this case that I found. Oh, where? I know the next case is going to be exciting. Oh yeah, Dan, Dan kind of alluded. Yeah, I'm excited. Should all right, let's get into this last murder. This is another. Yeah, this is just a good old fashioned murder, guys. Uh, God damn it, you know. We talk about them all the time. I don't mean to be cavalier about it, but this is what we do. <laughs> so take us back, David. When did this happen? Um, we're taking you to March 25th, 1982. Dan, we all have to do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> Ah, you guys are cool. Okay, so 1982, um, 43-year-old Hilda Roche meets a suave debonair fellow at a singles bar, a very famous singles bar, apparently. And not just any 43-year-old, a divorcee. Oh, yes, she was a divorcee. I didn't write that in my notes. I'm glad that you mentioned that. So this guy said he worked for military intelligence. He had a nice car and a nice place, and he was just the full package, you know what I'm saying? Um, the next day, she even bragged to her friends, said she had dinner with the man, and they and she planned to do it again. Again, this superficial theme comes back around. Nice car, nice job. Yeah, yes, the, yeah, definitely. But he was a dick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Friends of Hilda's said that um, he was single, he had a beautiful car, not just a nice car, beautiful car, um, and he had a lot of money. And um, the friend that's interviewed is very coy but it could just be now that she's dead you know i always think of these things like Like, well she's telling the story after in hindsight yeah but she's very coy she's like you know you should be weary this nice car could just be a rental he could be playing you (laughs) it could be a relative a friend could have rented a car it's still kind of expensive to rent a nice car but yeah whatever so one week after this rendezvous we should call it yes one week after this Rendezvous. Worst case scenario. 
um, a naked body is found in the woods, and um, it's a female body, and it's very close to an elementary school. Um, she was murdered execution style, which means shot in the back of the head, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she was sexually assaulted. They beat around the bush. They, it's so weird how they never say the word rape in this uh, well, yeah. in this case. It's so weird. It's not just in um, this case. There's there's other cases in there where they kind of just allude to it. Well, you know, in this, some of them they allude because they don't have proof. But in this one, they do say sexually assaulted, and they just don't use the word rape. And I think I wonder if maybe that's like a uh, like a thing with a censor. You know, sorry, not the censor. Censors, yeah, you know, you know, you know, with this the the network. You know, the network people possibly. Um, but yeah, yeah. So she was, there were signs of sexual assault. She was raped. So four days after, um, this body's found investigators search Hilda Roche's apartment because her coworkers reported her missing cause she hadn't been into work. Um, and this was definitely out of character and they were concerned enough to contact the authorities. Her purse was there. And um, they were immediately able to identify the body by just looking at a picture of her. And then they called everyone in and treated it as a crime scene, which was very much the case. There was signs of a struggle and um, like in the living room and in the uh, uh, bedroom, there was definitely signs of the rape taking place in the bedroom. But there was no signs of forced entry, which leads them to believe that, of course, it was somebody that she knew. We all know this. So Detective Cahill interviews all of the friends of Hilda to try to find out something else, try to find some new information. And um, and that's when the authorities learn about this mysterious man who they were having, you know, she was having the liaisons and the beautiful car and all these things. So what the police found out from the friends was a little more than we had already known. Um, he was from Florida. He had a nice car. He had a government job, government consultant, which is a little different than what they said. He lived at these apartments in Alexandria, which were apparently kind of nice, upper class. And she actually went to them. She went to the apartment the night that they first met. So she had been there. Um, so this is their best lead. This uh, complex housed 1,400 units, 1,400 unit complex. And uh, they pretty much didn't have any clues to identify him besides like what Hilda's friends told them. So they start searching through files of lease agreements from like three years back, trying to find someone who might match this, uh, you know, profile. And they come up with 32 people, 32 single men that might match this profile. So basically what they need now is they have these 32 names, right? Right. So remind me again, she said she went to his apartment complex. Where did they get that information from one of her friends? Because I was a little confused at this case. Uh, well, they get more into like what might have actually happened. And it does get kind of confusing and weird. Um, yeah, she on the night that they met she ended up at his apartment complex at his place. Yeah. So, but so, they didn't know um, which apartment, right? They just knew yeah. where yeah, the complex they, was. And that's where they kind of numer down this. They, they kind of crack down and they, they find a list of potential suspects because they knew yeah, that, out of 1400 people who live there, 32 yeah. sort of matched. 
And so they're closing in and they need more evidence to connect this person with Hilda. And this is where the story gets a little more confusing as well. This is what I was mainly focused on, which made me lose sight of everything else. It was like, what? What happened here with her wallet? Yeah, let's break this down. Hilda lost her wallet the night they met. And apparently this man insists to the person that works at the restaurant that he be called if the wallet is found. Which, I don't know where they get that information from either. Like, from one of her friends? I don't know. So, a few days later, they apparently call him and say that they have the wallet. And the friend just... It just didn't compute with the, the friend who's given us this story. She's like, why would they call him and why? And it just doesn't make any sense. And it's so weird. And it totally doesn't. She's completely right. It makes no sense. So, the manager... um so this actually happened, though. So I'm thinking, like, maybe he jacked the wallet and Dude, just brought it back. I was thinking the same thing. He jacked the wallet the night they met. But it actually happened because the manager is the one who, like, gets hypnot- – the person that works at the restaurant is the one who, like, you know, asks for ID and fucking remembers the phone number of the person who uh, who she called to get the wallet. You know? So it's like yeah. – so maybe what happened is she steals – he's – he steals the wallet from her and plants it at the restaurant. Like Th- that's after? that's what I thought is because he needed a, he he pulled a George Costanza and needed a reason to get her to call him back. That's exactly oh what God. happened. <laughs> a murdery George Costanza. <laughs> so maybe that's why it's like for some reason she told him to call them, or maybe he was just like, "Oh yeah, your wallet was at the restaurant." And they called me, and she was like, "Why? That's weird. That doesn't make any sense." It's so fucking weird. Yeah, yeah it is weird. It, it is weird. But I, I, I think the same thing happened. I think exactly what you said. He stole the wallet. He plants it back at the, the restaurant. They find it. They call him. Yada, yada, yada. He kills her yeah. execution style. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah. So the manager remembers um, like giving this person the wallet but doesn't remember the number. So like I said, they put the manager under hypnosis. And um, she's able to recall a phone number and the co- the hypnosis person, hypnotist, tells the cops that it, the number might not be exactly right, but it might be pretty close. And out of the 32 people on the list, there was an almost exact match. And it was, and it was uh, Gregory Baker. And he had moved out shortly after Hilda's murder, which is also pretty interesting and telling maybe. Um, but they couldn't find any affiliation with any sort of government agency. They thought he was just making that up. They actually thought he was nuts. They thought he was a, you know, he was just a scammer. They, they couldn't tell if he was just lying or a scammer, if he was actually kind of nuts. He was in Vietnam for two tours, decorated Vietnam vet. One of these tours, he was actually an intelligence officer and apparently he loved spy novels. So people are like, yeah, this has got to be our guy. Police also think that his mental state may have been really shitty and he might have been kind of nuts and actually thought that he was a master spy. So based on the evidence and all of that stuff that they found from the manager, Detective Cahill has a theory of what might have happened that night. And it's still very confusing. Like I still have a lot of questions about the fucking wallet (laughs) and all that. So he shows up at night with the wallet Maybe just wanting to give her back her wallet and maybe, you know, wanting some, you know, frisky business, something to happen. And from there, he doesn't know, he except for that there was a violent altercation in the living room. And then he was, she was taken upstairs and possibly stripped and raped there. 
And then she was taken against her will in the car. They show her in the trunk, but who knows? Um, and in between a new housing development and this elementary school in the woods, she was walked 150 feet out, butt naked. And she was, uh, did I say butt naked? <laughs> you totally did say butt naked. <laughs> Oh my god, that's exactly what I thought that that was when I was a kid. <laughs> it is kind of though. It's it makes so much more sense. Fuck, I'm sorry guys, this is terrible. So yeah, so she's forced out of the car at gunpoint, walked totally naked, totally nude, where she shot execution style. And um, ki- yeah... And from all the things they could surmise from the crime scene, they they didn't think that this was his first rodeo or his last rodeo. They definitely thought that he was a serial killer or had definitely killed before. And the update is crazy, guys. Yeah, um, I felt like the update was very anticlimactic. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I, I looked into it. It's, I know you guys looked into it, but just from the episode, episode, it's just like, oh, really? That's it. Yeah, Burker, Burker, Burker. the, you know, the was, update's wild. He was arrested. They don't, they're not showing him. He was found guilty, first degree murder, sentenced to sixty years. Okay, he's he's dead. He's dead now. He dead now. Yeah, but it's a, it's a little more than that. So he was actually captured in Phoenix, Arizona. He was arrested by federal agents, and he had actually been working in a phone room. What is a phone April, room? I guess like a call center. <laughs> On, they had so many words, telecenter, phone room, call center. Uh, um, he'd been working in a phone room on April 25th of 1991. This was the day following the airing of the Unsolved Mysteries episode. Now, I just picture him working in a, in a, <laughs> in a room full of corded phones and one is ringing and he's got to, his job is to find the one that's ringing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. Oh, my God. <laughs> so pictures of him allegedly robbing a bank and threatening the teller were used for identification. Whoa, really? He's, he robbed a bank yeah, too? He was a bank robber. So at the same time, um, Barker was arrested as a suspect in this investigation of the Hilda Roche murder. He was also suspected of 16 other murders. What? One of which was the kidnapping and murder of, a, of one Lisa Joe Shaner. This is a very interesting case. Um, who was the daughter of a Tucson FBI agent? I looked. I looked into the Lisa Joe Shaner case. It's wild, but we'll get to that in a second. So Barker was initially arrested by federal agents on a robbery charge in Nevada, and then he was captured the day after the episode aired when a woman that was working on the floor above him identified him from the show um, that she had just seen the day before. Damn. And apparently the day before he heard somebody um, said that they thought they saw him on TV that evening. Um, but he thought it was America, America's Most Wanted. And then he saw that it wasn't on that evening. So he thought somebody was just joking around with him. Wow. But it was Unsolved Mysteries. So he comes into work the next day and there's a bunch of agents ready to arrest him. And he goes without any fight or anything. Um, ironically, because he was working in a phone room. Um, his associates were known to press him about his alias. 
And apparently his alias, he was going under the name, the name Alexander Graham. <laughs> what the fuck is a phone room? <laughs> Isn't that insane? Uh, what's your name? Alexander Graham. I'm not going to go for Bell. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> so stupid. No one would ever buy that. My name is Alexander Graham. I belong here in the phone room. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, yeah, these his coworkers knew him to be a bit of a creep. Apparently, they would say that when he wasn't working, he was... He was known to walk the streets late at night, and eventually he would spend the night in an all-night theater, which I don't know what that means, like fall asleep in a th- movie theater? Means he would jack off to movies and just pass out. With yeah, or was it a porno theater? Yeah, see, I don't know. So, like I said earlier, apparently Barker served two terms in Vietnam, but um, apparently he's since claimed that his arrest was all part of a military cover-up. Oh, God. So he cuckoo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> in May of, of 92, Barker was convicted of first degree murder and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. So he's now dead. It's also unknown if Barker had anything to do with those other 16 murders he was accused of. But the murder of Lisa Jo Shaner, who is um, the daughter of a FBI agent, is not connected to him. It's effect they were arrested somebody for her murder a person named william floyd zamastil and this guy's a fucking monster like i've never heard his name but oh you looked him up he yeah yeah he's a piece of shit he was he was convicted of her murder in uh in 2011 and she died in 1973 it was 38 years of that family not knowing who killed who killed uh their daughter so how did they find him dna or what yeah, I actually I do have that story. So yeah, this is from uh, 2011. I have I pretty much I pretty much have the the news article here. So William Floyd's a mastill, 59, of Wapan, Wisconsin. He's convicted of the first degree murder for the 1973 murder of Lisa Joe Shaner. So for the details of that case. Miss Shaner leaves her home around 925 on May 29th of uh, 73. Um, to go, she's going to go pick up her husband from the airport in Tucson. When her husband got there, he couldn't find her. And the car she drove was later found in the airport parking lot with the window half open, the car unlocked, and her purse still in the back seat. So in September of 73, they find Lisa Joe Shaner's remains. So apparently she had been abducted from the airport and uh, taken to a very remote area where she was raped and murdered, and he buried her. At, at the time of his arrest, he was currently serving uh, three first-degree murder sentences for crimes he committed in 78 in Barstow, California, and in Madison, Wisconsin. He's been in custody since 1978. So in 78, this guy uh, kidnapped a 24-year-old woman in a parking lot in Wisconsin, um, he saw the victim getting in her car in the parking lot. He showed her his gun, forced her to move to the passenger seat, and then drove her 30 miles away where he raped and killed her. He pleaded guilty to the rape and murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment on that murder charge and a consecutive term of 20 years for the sexual assault. So while serving this Wisconsin sentence, he pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder in California 
on February 78, where he offered a ride to a brother and sister, 17 and 18, after the car broke down. These kids were last seen at a gas station. He later drove them to a remote area in the desert about 13 miles away. He murdered them, and their naked bodies were discovered by a sheep herder weeks later. He pled guilty on those two counts and was sentenced to indeterminate sentence of life without possibility of parole. To be served at the same time as the Wisconsin sentence, said Zamastil is eligible for parole May 1st of 2013 in Wisconsin. What? Such a confusing sentence. I don't think he's going to get it. <laughs> so he, he killed four fucking people. Um, the investigation into Miss Shaner's murder was conducted by the FBI and the prosecution was handled by Sandra M. Hansen. So it took them a while, but this guy had been in jail since like 1978. He was never going anywhere. And that's the story of a piece of shit. Ooh. Ew, gross. <laughs> to quote our friend Brandon. Um, what's next week? Season four is next week. No, movie no, no, it's not season four next week. We're covering a movie. Yeah. What are we going to watch? Uh, that one about the baby. It's on YouTube? Yeah, it's on YouTube. I don't remember what it's called, though. Without a Kiss Goodbye. I oh, think. yeah. <laughs> All these movies we watch on YouTube. <laughs> Yeah, because no one cares to, like, copyright them or give a shit, because they're all terrible. Yep. Pretty much. Ah, but yeah, we're watching Without a Kiss Goodbye, the 1993 flick with Christopher Maloney. And some other people. (laughs) Um, yeah, uh, that's what we'll be doing next week, and then season four... Which is definitely on Amazon Prime. And then Netflix is doing Unsolved Mysteries. We'll be there, too. Oh, we will be all over that shit. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Facebook, too. Stack Pack. The Stack Pack. Um, and uh, I'm at Davey Howe. I'm David Howe. D-A-V-Y-H-O-W. Uh, you can find me at road underscore Dan. And I am Big Bad Final Dad. And for every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is listening. Perhaps that someone is you.